Welcome Friends, Season 10, Episode number 75, Faith in a Fresh Vibe Podcast. I am your host, Ro Hattie, coming at you from Treaty 7 Territory in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. In this episode, we continue Season 10, a season of authors and their books. This episode features T.C. Moore and his book, Forged following Jesus into a new kind of family. I asked him a lot of questions about that, what chosen family might look like. I know many are working their way through language that was used in past church experiences that may have not been particularly life-giving. He has some answers for us as we venture through his book. Don't forget to rate. Don't forget to send this podcast to all of your friends that is appreciated word of mouth works without further ado enough from me let's jump in uh tc welcome uh the question i ask all visitors to the show is to situate themselves to the land situate themselves uh, so listeners can get a picture geographically of where you are but also to name the traditional lands on which your feet touch right now. So TC, where are you? Yeah, so I'm coming to you from the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples, um, commonly referred to as the Twin Cities. Twin Cities, uh, which are, are, for our Canadian listeners who may not know. In Minnesota. Yeah. St. Paul. That's right. Which I've been to. I don't know if I've been to the, maybe I have. I played a soccer tournament in Twin Cities. What year was that? Oh, like a long <laughs> time ago. A long time ago. It was either like 98 or like 95 or they called it the USA Cup. How about that? I wish anything that thing's still going. Get USA Cup. It's now. Just yeah, all the up kids. Yeah, up in Blaine, right? Blaine, Minnesota? that ring a bell? I, I feel like it was close enough. We stayed on the campus, the, the Gophers campus. And so it must have been close enough. So I don't know if Blaine's close enough. Yeah. Blaine's maybe 30 minutes outside the city. Yeah. Those were, it was so hot. That's what I remember. <laughs> Summertime. It was summer. It was yeah. so hot. Hey, you got this book. This is your debut, isn't it? Yeah, I, you know, a few years back when I was in LA, um, I was teaching a class on hermeneutics and I taught it probably three or four times and people were asking for some kind of physical resource. Um, and so I compiled my notes from that book into a book mm. that I just self-published. But other than that, no, this is my first kind of published um, debut. No, yeah, no, no, self-published books count, count. Yeah, they count. <laughs> Or else I only have one, but instead I say I have four. So they count. <laughs> they literally make me dozens of dollars a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But this book, the subtitle, so Forged Following Jesus into a New Kind of Family. And what I want to unpack with you for the bulk of our time is the concept of family. And what that looks mm. like in, in your context, so you can speak pr predominantly to your context, but we also know that culture is shifting all around us and the church is usually right. slow to shift. 
And so what are your takes of how to develop, how to build into this new picture, which may be an old picture of what family is? But before we do that, let's just jump into situate. We already have situated around geography, but to give listeners a quick summary of your, we were talking off air about your travels, your travels yeah. as a, <laughs> as a minister, because uh, you have a cool story of juxtaposing family and belonging uh, in a past life. And then you have this like road, long road and you young, <laughs> but this long road of ministry as well. So, so where, where you've been like all across the U S so where's yeah. that journey taking you? Yeah, I think, you know, when it comes to forging family, I think the journey begins when I was 19 and I moved to New Orleans. Mm. That was really where uh, I felt the call um, to begin serving and to move into the neighborhood and um, to love my neighbors and serve my neighbors. Um, and I was there from 2000 to 2005. And if it weren't for Katrina, I'd probably still be there because mm. Katrina really uprooted us in a very abrupt way in a very like traumatic way too. Like suddenly we realized we couldn't go home and we had to find someplace else to live. Um, and I had a buddy from Bible college uh, who was from New York, but had started seminary in Boston. And he, he said we could come and stay with them in Boston. So the next leg of our travels was 10 years in Cambridge, Massachusetts, like five minutes from Harvard and uh, kind of intelligentsia land, <laughs> you know, yeah, it was, you know, very heady, very heady time. And I was in seminary as well. And uh, during that period, we planted a church and I started a mentoring program and we built our family. We added a few more kids to our family. <laughs> so a couple of my kids are Bostonians. And then from Boston, we went clear cross country to LA for almost three years and um, took, a, took a call out there to a church in downtown. And, and then six years ago, uh, accepted a call here to, uh, to St. Paul. So I've been here for six years. And what's kind of neat that I found, although would it be accurate to say that you, you grew up in an urban context? So, um, Champaign-Urbana, I grew up in Champaign-Urbana, which is a campus town. It's probably... 100,000 people, you know, and then the city swells to like 150 when the college students come to town. <laughs> it's like 50,000 yeah, yeah. college students. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's two hours south of Chicago, a lot of Chicago transplants. Those are my friends. So I think of it as like, yeah, I think of it as urban, but yeah, not, not urban in the sense of like, you know, major metropolitan right. area. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Your ministry journey has taken you into different cultural contexts as well, uh, from that the heart of Harvard, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, to LA, which was uh, you ministered. Were you on Skid Row? The church that I was on staff at was about two blocks from Skid Row. It was on Spring Street, if you know downtown LA, like a couple blocks. Yeah. A lot of our, like about a third of our congregation were currently experiencing homelessness. Yeah. Yeah. Was that the first time that you would have engaged a, a, a church community that was in its 
makeup in its congregation crossed that type of, of intersection? Yes, yes. So in Boston, I had a lot of um, friends who worked in, in, that, in homeless ministries. Um, and so I had a lot of exposure to it, but never in the church yeah, congregation. Yeah, not integrated yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was a new experience for me. And it was really eye-opening. I, I write about it in the book. Like people would come and visit and they would say, what does this church do for the homeless? And I'd be like, uh, yeah, what do you mean yeah, by yeah. the homeless? Yeah. Like, like they're this group out there. Yeah. And I'm like, they're part of our church. Yeah. They're our sisters and brothers. Like, are you talking about Tony? Because yeah. Tony's like my brother in Christ. Like that dude's right he's here. not the homeless. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What does that do to shift your understanding of ministry? Like I, I, I think back of my own experience of when we we well, I church planted, but quickly connected with two other small communities and we were in the inner city and operated out of a coffee shop. And there were times where we would do these outreach events where the big church would send folks in to help. And you could tell the disconnect of wanting yeah. to serve, but not to, not be too integrated right. versus right. when we would hold our version of services, like we would have the unhoused youth or folks who were working in the industry come through and, and with all of their reality, uh, they were part of the community. And that right. shifted my understanding of of ministry a, a lot, a lot. I don't know if yeah. you pull out some some ideas of 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 what types of say presuppositions or or how about this formation of pastoral leadership that went through the ringer as you're like, oh, community looks like this. Yeah. So the way the way that I describe that in the book is by contrasting two superhero teams. So as a, as a young Pentecostal preacher, like one of my go-to analogies was the X-Men. I grew up on the X-Men. That was like my favorite comic book growing up. And so if you're Pentecostal and you're in first Corinthians a lot, and you're in acts a lot, you know, you're talking about the gifts and the body of Christ and everybody gets a gift and we're all superheroes yeah, yeah, and we're all, yeah. we all have our, you know, superpowers. Mm. And so you kind of envision the body of Christ as this elite team who can all be superheroes in their own right. You know, they don't really need the team. The team is just like an added bonus. You know, you could see Storm just being Storm all yeah, by herself. Yeah. You know, Storm doesn't need, Storm doesn't need Wolverine. Storm yeah. can just be Storm all by herself. <laughs> but, but along comes the Guardians of the Galaxy. And mm -hmm. the Guardians of the Galaxy depicts a different kind of superhero team where each member definitely has their gifts, but they need one another because they're on a healing journey together. They're, in, they're more interdependent than the X-Men. I feel like they're all kind of misfits in their own way and left mm -hmm. to their own devices. They would mm -hmm. sort of be screw ups, you know, but when yeah. they come together, they like form something better together, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and they're, and they're helping one another and they're forging family. They're really bonding in a, in a way that they need one another and their community for one another. So I, 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 I contrast those two teams in the book by saying, I used to have this picture of the church as like the church is like the X-Men. But my, my experience in LA was like, no, actually, the church is supposed to be the guardians of the galaxy. <laughs> we're kind of like misfits and we're, 
Mm. And we're interdependent. We need one another. And we're on a healing journey together. You know, I don't know if you've seen the sequel uh, where Rocket kind of discovers his like origin, yeah, you know, yeah. man, that's emotional, man. I was in the, I was in the, I was in the theater. Like, <laughs> yeah, like, this guy's a raccoon. Like what's happening? Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> Bradley but Cooper, they're on a no. healing journey, you know, and that's more like us. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like the unpacking and the use of that, that metaphor uh, and that also challenges so much of, of, of culture of which superheroes are built upon our culture to, to, mm -hmm. to really uh, emphasize the, the supreme individual, you know, not only an individual, but one with superpowers. Like, right. What couldn't you right. do with all these superpowers? But then, you know, how far do you get when you're by yourself? Well, I guess Superman, you know, you do everything. But you're lonely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's right. The call comes. You shift to the Twin Cities. Was mm -hmm. that the first time you ministered in an intentionally, as I understood it, multi-ethnic context slash congregation? No, not at all. Mm -hmm. Actually... I was really, really fortunate to come to faith in a, a very diverse Pentecostal church in Urbana. Because it's a campus town, um, there's a lot of international students. And the church was situated right across the street from international student housing. Mm. And so the church that I learned how to follow Jesus in as a teenager was filled with people from around the world. And I got the benefit of um, just that cultural immersion and getting to know people who are so much different than me and grew up in so many different ways in so many different countries. So that, that was actually my introduction to Christianity was, um, was really the multi-ethnic church. And then from there, um, in New Orleans, the ministry that I served and the churches that I served were all multi-ethnic with the exception of one. I did for a time, um, was the youth pastor of a church in Bayou Booty, Louisiana, which is a real place, Bayou Booty, Louisiana. And there, um, most of the youth, almost all of the youth were Cajun. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I remember them describing their culture to me and just being, it being very, very different than what I, how I grew up. They rode uh, boats to school through the, through the bayou yeah, yeah, instead of yeah. like taking the bus. Like I would take the bus to school when I was a yeah. kid. They rode their boats yeah. and they, their boats were called P-Rows. They were like flat bottom boats. Yeah. And like, I rode my P-Row to, to school this morning. You know, what is a P-Row? You know? <laughs> so that's the only um, non-multi-ethnic church that I've ever served. But totally um, culturally different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's super neat. But the church in LA was crazy diverse. The church in downtown LA we did a demographic study one year I was there and it was 18 to 22% black, white, Latino, and Asian. That's how, yeah. that's how evenly distributed yeah. Yeah. the ethnicity was in that yeah. church. And like I said before, about a third of the church were currently experiencing homelessness. Yeah. So it was very socioeconomically diverse as well. Yeah, I think for the majority of churches, and I know there are places in America, especially in the big cities where this is shifting a little bit, where mm -hmm. you find more multi-ethnic churches, but by and large, churches are described by their sameness. In fact, they're organized around sameness. Right. Everyone earns, thinks, acts, looks the same. 
lives in the same place usually. So to have these congregations that crisscross intersections is is a gift. It's it's mm-hmm. rare, but it's a gift. Would you say that the churches that you that you ministered in were multi-ethnic in congregation? Were they also that was the uh, makeup of leadership expressive of the congregation as well? Yeah. Um, the church that I served in, uh, in LA, the lead pastor was Korean American. And the, um, I think I was the only, no, there was another, there was another white woman on staff. So there was two white pastors on staff. Um, Delonte Golston, who's a wonderful uh, pastor in DC now was on staff. Uh, he's African-American. Um, our worship pastor, like our pastor for musical worship was Latino. It was a very, very diverse staff. Um, really beautiful too. Like our teamwork was amazing. Our chemistry was amazing. Um, up until it wasn't, <laughs> mm. which I talk about in the book. Mm. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. And then thinking back to, uh, in, in New Orleans, the church that I was a part of, um, in, in the neighborhood where I served was a AME church plant and the pastor was African-American. Mm-hmm. Um, and then let's see, back in Boston, um, Sung Chan Ra planted the church that I attended for a while. Uh, and then his successor, Larry Kim, who's a good friend of mine, was the mm-hmm. pastor, mm-hmm. Um, okay. Korean American. I know that dude, um, at so least from social media. Yeah. For a while, mm-hmm. I was on staff at a wonderful church in Dorchester called Rescued Church. Ricky Grant was the lead pastor of that church, African American pastor and Mako Nagasawa was the um, uh, kind of teaching pastor, uh, Japanese American brother from like intervarsity background. Amazing, amazing church. Very, very diverse. I think it was Baptist. That's a, a gift to be coming from Baptist, Pentecostal, non-denominational, and all yeah. these having different expressions of multi-ethnicity in them. Although that doesn't solve every intersection, of course, but that alone just tears away at some of the foundational, perhaps, attributes in the Western church being uh, racialized sameness. So mm-hmm. you have all that underneath your belt as you move into St. Paul into yeah. a church that was already multi-ethnic, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, planted by a Hmong American pastor right, in right. 2014. Yeah. And that's where you've been ever since. Mm-hmm. Well, let's go into like unpacking, because that's, that's really useful context for the listener, but also is indicative of, of your own uh, leadership context of now what informs you and your picture of what community can be and how you lead and so forth like that. The language of family, let's, let's go there now. Your book is about yeah. for, just forged following Jesus into a new kind of family. I think right off the bat, when folks hear that, if you have grown up in the church and that's not your jam anymore... You might bristle at the notion of family. Didn't Netflix do something about the family? Wasn't there like something about like... There was a cult called the family, yeah. (laughs) There was a... Are we talking about the same thing? There was so... There's a cult called the family. Yeah. And then that like the evangelical behind the scenes, money, money power. Right. In DC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Yeah, Prayer breakfast and the family. Very secretive society kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating stuff. Yeah. 
No, I, I actually address that in the book because I feel the same way. I, um, because of my experience, uh, not having very much biological family to speak of, mm. it was just me and my mom and my mom was schizophrenic and, um, never, never met my biological father, no siblings. So because of a lack of, um, biological family, my, my concept of family in a healthy context has come from these these relationships that I've forged over many years, right? In, uh, in, a, in a kind of chosen family sort of way. So I have this positive outlook on family. But one time I was teaching on this concept at, um, at church and we do kind of a dialogue model. And so there was talk back. Yeah. And so a wonderful sister in my church named Renee was like, you know, TC, you have this very like optimistic view of family. <laughs> and she's like, but you know, to me, Sometimes when I hear family, I hear insiders versus outsiders. Hmm. And I was like, oh, that's good. That's good. Like I needed, I needed to hear that. And so I spend the second chapter of the book talking about some of the ways that family dynamics can, be, can become really toxic. And so um, for that chapter, I use Encanto as an example. Hmm. Encanto is a great like modern parable of the ways in which family can go wrong and the ways in which we need to understand enmeshment and differentiation from our families. You could be too enmeshed into your family unit that you don't really have your own sense of self. And you could be so indifferent to your, to your family that you don't have a sense of solidarity, a sense of like collective mm. with your family. And so there's this beautiful, you know, um, picture in Encanto at the end when um, Maribel really like discovers how to be in right relationship with her family through the toxicity, right? She has to work through, you know, Bruno being oppressed and being marginalized herself, right? Like, like th that's all really good uh, analogies for how we navigate our own biological families and chosen families as well. Um, another resource that, that I use in the book that I think is really helpful is A Church Called Tove by Scott McKnight who really talks about some of these toxic culture yeah. um, traits that show up in institutional churches, which are easily identifiable. And he's, he's operating from the perspective of the institutional church. And he's specifically addressing, you know, he was like re theologian in residence at uh, Willow Creek when that blew up. So, right. um, so he's addressing some of those toxic traits that were, that were um, un unveiled, revealed in that time. So, yeah. So yeah, I spend the second chapter really kind of addressing how family can go wrong and, and the red flags and when you need to walk away from uh, a system that's toxic, right? In, in reality, it sounds like this book is a reclamation of sorts of, of family, especially for those who have come out yeah. of places where, where they've been wounded, they've been harmed yeah. by family, by community. It's like, I don't, I don't want to hear that word. Like the, the yeah. that that's... That's culty. That uh, is indicative of the us versus them. And if you're not mm -hmm. in, you're out. It is a way to be yeah. marginalized by people who are close to you. Like there's a lot of wounds for folks yeah. around. And let's keep it with church community. Around church community. And when I think of folks who are deconstructing, one of the biggest pieces is the grief that you hold when you try mm -hmm. to call out the harm. And then yes. you realize the folks who were your family are actually nowhere to be found and right. you are left alone. And, and that yeah. leaves wounds where you are going to have a tough time to trust again.
Yeah, absolutely. I think for me, that's where the spirit steps in. So outside of those institutions that marginalize, those institutions that um, proclaim their family to you, but then turn on you when you point out the inconsistencies or, or you just ask too many questions. I mean, those, there's institutions where the, you know, just, just raising your hand and asking questions is too much. Um, I think that's where outside of those institutions is where the spirit is at work forging family. That's where we discover our siblings um, in Christ. And I use this analogy in, in the book to kind of contrast the institutional church from what I'm describing as forged family. Um, there's, a, there's a famous story in the Gospels of Jesus taking James, Peter, James, and John with him up on a mountain. And on this mountain, Jesus reveals his heavenly glory to this, these few, you know, special disciples, right? Like three people in history have seen this, this, this heavenly glory, right? And in the midst of this miracle, you know, Elijah shows up and Moses shows up. So this is amazing. This is a once in a forever kind of thing to happen. And in that exact moment, Peter goes, hey, can we build three chapels right here? And even Luke says something like he didn't know what he was talking about, you know, <laughs> and I just think that's such a perfect analogy for what we're doing when we're trying to institutionalize this movement of the spirit that is forging family. There's a miracle taking place where God is making strangers into family. Mm. And we're saying, can we build a chapel right here mm. and just kind of box this up and <laughs> bottle it into a 501c3 that we can, you know, <laughs> get tax exempt status for like. No, that's the wrong question to be asking. And I think that like sometimes in my journey, I have forged family in the midst of the local church and the local church has been the site where those bonds have been forged. But oftentimes it's been in the most informal relationships outside of the institution yeah. where I forged the strongest bonds yeah. in Christ. Yeah. And I feel like mm. that's what I'm trying to say is that we don't need another institution. We yeah. don't need to replace the crumbling one with a new one. Mm. We need to look for the miracle that the spirit is doing in the midst of us. Mm. Now that's the challenge out there. So let's stick with it and, and stick with the folks who have grown up with a lot of the language around family that you use. I don't think a lot of, of readers would, be, would find that foreign. They, they would resonate or they have heard it before. What that conjures up, however, might be those aspects of being wounded, of the harm. So why should I trust again? Why should I draw myself into the prospects? And, and I love how you've put it because I think you're, you're right that Christianity is calling us into a new logic of how to do community. And I wonder if many of us who have been, well, if you have been harmed in that and there hasn't been repair, then that wasn't it. But it's so glib yeah. for a minister like you and I to be like, oh, just, you know, come on through, like, won't happen again. <laughs> won't happen here. <laughs> like, forget that. No, no, this place, this place, we can be family. I don't think that I'm, I'm uh, inviting people into a new, you know, church. 
Mm. <laughs> like I'm not standing at the door and being like, this time will be different. I'm saying, man, if you need to leave my church to find fourth family, do it. Like that's where the spirit is at work. The movement of the spirit is not confined to any one church mm-hmm. or any denomination, or I would even argue even any faith tradition, yeah, you know, yeah, God is, yeah. bigger. God is bigger than our, than our faith traditions. Mm-hmm. The spirit is at work forging family. And I don't know if it's a matter of trying. I think the spirit is going to lead you and draw you into forged family. Um, one of the things I say in the book is that God was family before anything else existed. Hmm. God was family all, all by God's self. <laughs> hmm. the, you know, the, the, the way that early Jesus disciples conceptualized God was as love. And how do we understand God being love? How can God be love? Well, one of the ways that early Christians conceptualized this was inside of God's self, there is lover, beloved, and the love they share. There's this movement of love, this perichoretic dance of love within, within God, God's self. And so this movement of love was already forming family before the world began. And so I'm saying in this book that that same spirit is at work in the world right now, forming family, forging family. And I'm not, I'm not asking people to just trust that another institution is not going to hurt you this time. I'm saying, trust the God who is love to lead you into forged family wherever you are. I was not looking for forged family. I didn't go, I didn't go like, hey, I'm going to try again with this church. No, I was lost. <laughs> I was lost mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. scared and hurting and broken. And the spirit set me in family. That's what Psalm 58 mm. says. It says, God is a father to the fatherless setting the lonely in families. Okay, fill in the gap here because that was so good. There you you as as leader as pastor did not create the strategy or the or the ministry or the outreach to <laughs> you know the forged family outreach program. You didn't have exactly. that and then you were called the spirit guided you into a place where the possibilities of such a family could take place. Yeah, I'm describing my own uh, sort of encounter with the spirit when I was when I was 16, almost 17 years old. I got invited to a church, but I was not trying to become part of a church. I mean, that was the last thing on my mind was like joining a church or even becoming a Christian was not on my mind. But I had this encounter with the living God that I couldn't deny in my experience. So what I'm saying is that when people are wounded, when people are ostracized, when they are cast out that's where god is at work Mm. in the marginalized among those and the spirit is drawing those communities into forged family like Mm. okay for example here's a here's a great example that's a good one where do we see right now in society the strongest examples of chosen family in the lgbt community Mm -hmm. that's where chosen family Mm. is really taking root and supplanting the traditional concepts of yeah, family. Yeah, yeah. Why is that? Because they're marginalized. Yeah. Because yeah. they've been cast out of institutions, even their own families. That yeah. is where the spirit's at work. It's almost as if uh, last shall be first. That there is this. <laughs> I've heard that somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Can you imagine? And the spirit is working on the margins first. Yes. 
yes. to build this chosen family. Okay, I, I'm not going to put it within a church context. Let's stick with marginalized communities because whether it's LGBTQ, whether it is disabled, whether it is racialized, mm-hmm. let's not put it within a church context, but it actually makes a lot of sense when it is there in, in healthy expressions. But facets, features, um, pieces that I, if I'm drawn into the potential of said family, would be able to notice as markers of health. What are those pieces of chosen family? The first one I would say is the sharing of your life. When I was 17 and needed to understand what wholeness and healing and purpose in my life looked like, someone shared their life with me. Someone drew me into their orbit and walked with me as I wrestled with these questions and made mistakes and got up again and tried something new. That act of solidarity, that act of loyalty, that act of community is the first step to forging family. You got to be open and vulnerable. You got to be willing to share your life. Um, I quote the Apostle Paul in that chapter who said, we, were, we not only shared the gospel with you, but we shared our own lives as well. It's not just about a message or a book. It's about a person, an embodied, enfleshed reality, right? I didn't need a, a handbook when I was 17. I needed a person to walk with me to be that guide, to be that companion on the journey. That's step one. And then inevitably, in any kind of loyal, committed relationship, you're going to have to figure out how to work through conflict. So I have a chapter on how do we work through conflict? If we're going to be committed to each other for the long haul, we got to have a framework. We got to have a way of approaching conflict that's going to get us through to the other side, right? So Mm. forge families, are, they share their lives with one another. They work through conflict. And then, they, like you said, they have rhythms. So every family is going to develop rhythms. Like, for example, I don't use this example in, in the book, but my family has this quirky tradition of going to the movies on Christmas morning in our PJs. That's just something that emerged organically out of our family culture. You know, I, I think one, one Christmas morning we were like, hey, we're all still in our PJs. Let's go to the movies. I don't know how it happened, honestly, but it's just become this family tradition. And last Christmas, two of my kids came downstairs. They were not in their PJs. And my oldest was like, what are you doing? Go back upstairs, put your PJs on. Like you're not ruining the family tradition, right? It was so funny to watch him be the guardian of this tradition, right? (laughs) And so like families develop these rhythms. And in Christ, we have these rhythms of, gathering together around a meal. Mm -hmm. And it's so fascinating to me that Jesus didn't give us a manual, didn't give us a book, didn't give us 16 fundamental truths. Mm. Jesus gave us a meal to gather around a table and to share our lives with one another. And as, as so many people can testify to, when you share a meal with someone, you share a part of yourself. You cook for them, you you express some of your culture in that cooking, you sit around the table, you get to know one another. There's something about a meal that brings people together in an intimate way. That's a rhythm. Um, Another one is um, serving one another. I think forged families get into a rhythm of serving one another. You need something, 
I'm there for you. I need something, you're there for yeah, me. Yeah. They show up for one another and they serve one another. That becomes a rhythm. And then um, lastly, I think forged families have to have a prophetic witness. And what I mean by that is, I have a chapter in the book called Giving Special Honor because forged families are aware of their social locations. They're aware of their relationship to the broader society and how it's unjustly structured. Mm. And they're, they're creating equity within the community to combat and to be a witness to that broader mm. community. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then solidarity. I guess the last one would be solidarity. So my last chapter is called... Yeah, absolutely. Um, my last, last chapter is called Love in Public, and it's about the murder of George Floyd, because in our community um, in St. Paul, there was tension simmering beneath the surface between the Hmong community and the Black community. Mm. And this rose to the surface when one of the officers who sort of handled crowd control yeah, while yeah, Derek Chauvin murdered yeah. George Floyd. Yeah. Um, you know, he was Hmong American. Mm -hmm. And this really kind of, this exacerbated that tension. And at the same time that was going on, our church had invited um, a precious brother to me, Der Lohr, on staff, a Hmong American brother, um, to be a pastor in residence as he was seeking his next call. And Der and I went down to the third precinct um, the night that it was burned down and we were out there and we were part of the protest. We were part of the, you know, the kind of open air service that was there. You know, Durr's sign was really simple. It said Hmong Americans for black lives. Mm. And I felt like that simple act of solidarity mm. was so prophetic in that moment, Power. in that context. Yeah. yeah. So those are sort of like the, the markers, the signs of forged family. Yeah. 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 I really value those. And, and, I can see, however, the, I want to talk about the rhythms, but mm. before that, step one, I can see how there's a problem there, because if you, it's a paradox, it's a paradox, really, when it comes to relationship and vulnerability, in that you don't want to get hurt again, yet in order to find your whole self, you need to be in community. Mm, so you kind of risk yeah. it again. Yeah. And that's just like this, this huge unknown. It stymies, I think, most people into, let's not do that again. And if you're you know, a good Asian like me, uh, let's just bury that and never go that way again <laughs> and never talk about it. What we got to do to be vulnerable again. And so I, 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 I feel like there is a block in that space, especially for folks who have, have been wounded by community before. To, to get into a place where you can be vulnerable again, because that's risky. That's yeah. risky. For me, it wasn't a conscious choice. I felt led by the spirit into relationships in which I did not choose. I was invited. I was shown radical hospitality in a way that could only be from God. And that opened me up to be vulnerable because I sensed the spirit at work in this community. I sensed the spirit at work in these relationships. And I think you have to be discerning. You know, not every community, not every relationship is the right one. So I think you have to really rely on your 
your gut. You have to rely on the spirit within you. You have to rely on your intuition to say, is this a person that I can, yeah. that I can open up to? Is this a community that will, that will believe me, that will, that will hold my story with honor, that will um, treat me with dignity? Mm -hmm. And if not, the spirit is not leading you there. <laughs> peace, peace, peace out. The spirit is not leading you there. Uh, that's, there's something to be said about as, as we deal, if folks have come out of places where they have been wounded, where they, where they have been othered or wronged, marginalized, that there's work around dealing with that grief. Yeah. That individual work. You know, you have to deal mm -hmm. with that grief, unfortunately. You have to yeah. deal with that grief. And, and when we do, it in fact builds a capacity, an alertness, a consciousness around identifying. And, and it, it, this is a skill of yeah. naming when those red flags pop up again. So in fact, right. our healing and always healing, our healing leads us into a place of developing competencies around being more alert and aware of the baddies. Yeah. Uh, doesn't, yeah. doesn't solve how weird or risky it is to try again, mm -hmm. but our wholeness is found in, in that community. Yeah. I appreciate the uh, rhythms, rhythms, in, and I just read a book on rituals. And how we, as society, we have lost our, our so many rituals and how they are used as these grounding pieces to our day-to-day -day and beyond narratives of life, the, the rituals and the rhythms. I wonder how that plays into, as I muse out loud on this, and, and maybe we'll trail out now, on ultimately belonging in mm -hmm. that not merely rhythms of belonging, uh, but how our yearning for belonging right now is one that can send us down the road of polarization and that so many of us aren't ready to, or oh, I'm still unpacking this, but aren't ready to risk looking inside of ourselves for that sense of community that will find places and spaces that in fact detract from our humanity and spit out a certain venom of, of self. And so when I look at the polarization around politics in America and in Canada now, mm. we have, I think, underneath the surface, problems of belonging, yeah. of community, of yeah. identity surrounding healthy community and belonging. I learned a lot from, um, I don't know if you've read any of his work, but um, James K.A. Smith mm. has done a lot of work on cultural liturgies mm. and the ways in which um, society has these rituals that are almost invisible to those who are, to, to, to those for whom they're normative, right? We go through the motions sometimes unconsciously and just do these things that mm we don't even realize are forming us in a certain way. Like, for example, here in the Twin Cities, you know, there's a lot of um, sporting events and I've been to a lot of sporting events. And, uh, you know, if, if you go to a Twins game and you get there early enough, you know, they're going to be like, please remove your hats and place your hands over your hearts for yeah. 
the mm-hmm. uh, national anthem. Yeah. And I'm like, so I'm not doing that. Yeah. I'm not doing that. <laughs> you yeah. can announce it over the loudspeaker, but uh, I don't know why you think you're going to get compliance that way. Mm. That's a cultural liturgy that they're like, please, please place your heart. Please place your hand over your heart. What does that symbolize? Mm. This anthem is really going to the heart of me. This, I'm really pledging my allegiance, my heart mm. to this flag, <laughs> to this nation, mm-hmm. right? It's literally a ritual about allegiance, mm. mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and people just do it kind of unconsciously. Like, yep, that's what you do at the baseball game. You pledge your allegiance to the flag. And yeah, I mean, so we have to be intentional about the rituals that we form that we enact in our forced families? Mm. What are the embodied practices that are forming us in a healthy way towards healthy allegiances? I remember, so I I tell this story in the book. I remember when I was working with youth that are um, court involved and this young man was talking about how he wants to turn over a new leaf. He's done with the life that he was living and he's ready to like cut off those friends and start living a new life. And A friend of mine was there and he was like, that's not good enough. He's like, you can't just cut off the people that you were with before. You have to gather with your with new people who are on a different kind of time, you know, and have a different kind of mindset. And you got to gather with them on a regular basis. And you've got to like practice something grounding meditation. You got to do something together that's going to keep you mentally focused on what your goals are. And I was looking at this guy like, are you really describing church? (laughs) Are you like, should he do it once a week on Sunday morning? Should he, you know, like, um, but like, but, but we intuitively know that we need each other and we need these rhythms that are going to form us in the right direction. It's just, are we intentional about the kind of rituals that we develop for ourselves and for our communities that are forming us in the right direction. Mm. And sometimes we aren't. Sometimes we just go through the motions. Well, that's how we've always done it. That's what my, you know, previous, that's what my grandfather did. You know, it's like, maybe the rituals need to change. Yeah, maybe the, and, and I think rituals do change as those who upheld them in the past, they go away, <laughs> they pass on, and then the mm-hmm. next gen comes through to question whether or not they still hold value for us. And I think that uh, that search for belonging or community, that search for family can lead you in a place where you fill that void. We all need it, but you can fill that void with aspects that detract from your humanity. Absolutely. Communities that detract from the humanity of those on the marginalized, which would be a great litmus test. Mm -hmm. Measure based on how your rituals, your ideas, your community, your family, treat those on the margins first. Yeah. But we still hold that in the tension of we need this, and if I don't have it, I need to risk trying to find it again so I don't venture mm-hmm. these mean streets alone. Yeah. Hey, we, we crisscrossed the galaxy here on family, <laughs> and it was so good. I wonder if you want to trail off and leave us with the shout outs to where folks can find you and your book. It's, is it out now or is it really close? 
So it releases on February 13th, but from what I've been told, Amazon just ships yeah, they just, books yeah. as soon as they get them. Yeah, yeah, they're great. <laughs> People are already getting their pre-orders now. Um, so, so, you know, yeah, it's out in a sense. And, um, and you can go to forgedfamily.com. That's a book website where you can pre-order uh, from various venues, including Bookshop, if you're not into the big corporate booksellers. Um, Bookshop is an indie local bookstore seller. And you can order it directly from Broadleaf. I have a, um, a page about myself at tcmore.net, M-O-O-R-E. Uh, do you use the, the social medias at all? Are you into the social medias? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I am kind of reluctantly um, now. Uh, I'm not on formerly known as Twitter X. I'm not on yeah, X whatever. <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Um, I think I'm on threads and, um, and Instagram. Yeah, follow me on Instagram, TC underscore more. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Facebook. Look me up on Facebook. Cool. Well, next next time in Twin Cities. You coming back to the USA Cup? <laughs> no, they don't have an over 40 division. <laughs> Why not? That would be great. <laughs> I'd be dead. <laughs> <laughs> Forget it. That's good.